Oh, hello, my lovelies. This is your host, the DJ with the mostest, Pavel. Ooh. Yeah, you can call me Pavel, you can call me Pavs, you know who I am. And here's a brand new episode of the Pavelcast. Today on the show, we have Caleb Campbell, a close friend of mine, someone who worked at Blue Tree. He's currently the Senior Vice President of Talent and Culture at Blue Tree. Um, he has a fascinating background. You know, when he was young, his parents were missionaries, um, went to Taiwan where he, he grew up. He spent 10 years there. Then he moves to the Ukraine to go to high school. Can you imagine being in high school in a whole different world, learning a new language? Um, it was a lot of, it's interesting kind of tracing that through and how that helped him develop this, I think, a really superhuman power of um, knowing people and being able to really build culture and, and, and being a nice guy that understands how how humans work. So we take that and we go into, you know, what is remote culture? How do companies build remote culture? Um, and what can, you know, leadership from the top to mid-level to just individuals, how can they help create a company culture in a remote setting that is actually good and fun and and leads to innovation and, and profits. I mean, I think that's important. We talk about markets. We talk about the last dance. You know, the whole idea of 1990s basketball, Michael Jordan, um, his leadership style, and just our fascination with it at the time in Europe. Um, and we actually have Caleb rap for us, or tell us a poem in a rap kind of style. It was amazing. Loved it, and I think you will too. Come on in. Alrighty, here we go. Welcome to the Pavelcast. Today we have the absolute joy and pleasure to welcome Caleb Campbell to the show. Caleb, welcome. Pavel, it is a distinct honor and privilege. I hear you even showered for this today. I'm excited. Listen, I just went to the shower. I jumped out. I want to be clean. I want you to, like you said, smell how clean I am. This is no dirtiness, just completely clean, good old-fashioned fun. I love Pavel it. Cast, I love baby. it. That's right. And I love that uh, you're coming to me from a place I've had the chance to visit once or twice. I may or may not have stolen an avocado from the tree 15 feet away from you right now. Yeah. So people don't know, I, I'm lucky I have this avocado tree basically right next to the patio. And um, it's, uh, it's kind of incredible. It's like you're living in a movie. Oh, here, I'm going to take my avocado, make my avocado toast, California lifestyle. Woo-hoo-hoo. There's a, a lot of memories I have involving you, Pavel, that made me think I was living in a Pavel movie, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe one day we get, you know, we can get a writing team going and, and really write about my life. All right, so people that don't know you, so uh, I'll give you a little background and obviously chime in. You, I mean, you have a kind of an interesting path to where you are today in life. Um, I, people might not even know that. So you speak Chinese, you speak Russian. You started out uh, doing kind of missionary work, pastor work. Um, then you got into healthcare IT. Now you are the senior vice president of Blue Tree of Talent and Culture. And you know Blue Tree is a remote company. You kind of helped build that whole remote culture thing. Um, and I really want to touch upon that because I think now with the pandemic, you know everybody's talking about oh work from home. What's going to happen? Are we going to go back to the New normal, old normal, you know, you have companies like Facebook saying we're going to go all remote. But before we go there, let's, let's talk a little bit about Caleb. So you, where did you go to high school? I went to high school. Uh, actually, my four high school years, we lived in Kiev, Ukraine. 
So like you said, my parents did, my parents did missionary work. I moved overseas when I was three. I was in Taiwan all the way through eighth grade. So for 11 years. And then we moved, yeah, right after communism fell, moved to the former Soviet Union, Ukraine specifically, and did uh, four years of high school there. It was independent study through the University of Nebraska. They actually have an accredited high school program for kids that lived overseas at the time. I assume they still have it. And then, um, and then like half the day I went to the local Ukrainian school and that's where I had friends, played sports, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, What do you remember more fondly, Taiwan or Ukraine? I mean, totally different, I'm sure. I mean, you're trying to back me into a corner right away here, Pavel, or? (laughs) But um, I mean, different countries, right? Like. It it was totally different experiences. I think Taiwan always felt more like home because you don't remember much before three. So that was, those are the first memories that I had. Um, had a lot of friends. Um, I was embedded in an international school there that had a lot of the same program you'd have in an American school. So I had 30 kids in my class from all over the world, a lot of lifelong friendships. Um, and then when we moved to Ukraine, the nation itself was in such a state of upheaval. And I, as a teenager, was wondering why the heck my parents dragged me to another place instead of letting me at least go back to the U.S. Um, so I think based on the frame of mind at the time, I would have said Taiwan, and now, you know, you look back, and they're both pretty cool experiences. How, like, from what age did you have these lifelong friends? Let's give them a shout-out. Give a shout-out to one of those buddies. Oh, folks that are out there now? So, yeah. uh, how about a little Stephen Way, B.R. McDonald? Yeah, a couple folks a couple folks that are out there. I, I don't know, Pavel, do real people listen to this? I might they have might, to they, We might have along. to send them a link, but <laughs> hey, I, I mean, they'll I, find I it on what, their own. I heard 1.7 million viewers. I never know what to believe, but uh, we're listening to <laughs> I'm the new Joe Rogan. How did you manage to maintain friendships for like that many years? It, I mean, going back to like, I don't know, you said three, maybe you met him when you were seven. That's still a yeah. long time. Yeah. I mean, you just keep in touch. Um, I wouldn't say close friendships, but at the same time, you have certain common memories. I mean, you know, you bounce around, may not talk to him for a couple of years. And then you catch up, run into each other on, you know, somebody found me on LinkedIn a little while back um, and just check in that way. I see. And it's kind of it, what happens to me when I see old friends all the time, especially friends from like a long time ago when you're young, is you kind of get taken into that mental state. And like immediately you're just like, oh, it's, a, it's like we would never left. I think that's what you're kind of referring to. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. always connect. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what year was it when you were in the Ukraine? It's like right after the collapse, early 90s. Yeah, so 90, 93, 97. Oof. So I left yeah. in 96, and, and then I was still a kid, but like what I remember, and you were a kid too, but what I remember was how, I mean, it was just like lawlessness over there, complete and utter lawlessness. And I, uh, like, I, I don't, I, I think I've told this story before, on the way out of the country, when we were immigrating, we got stopped by the mafia, and basically they took our stuff, and they're like, okay, pay us, and we'll let you go. Otherwise your stuff is gone. You can't leave the country. We know you're emigrating. And like my parents had to pay him off with whatever they had. And then we got off on the plane and see you later. Russia never been back. So that's my like kind of, did you experience like crazy mafia or you shielded? No, there were definitely experiences there. So it was interesting. Um, You know, you land, you land in Ukraine in 1993 and our, our layover was in Amsterdam. So we lived in Taiwan. We go back to the States for the summer. We, we spend a little bit of time in Europe, come in from Amsterdam. 
totally different. 1993 Ukrainian airport feels like 1943, probably somewhere else. It was so far behind the times and you come out and immediately just chaos, even coming outside, people trying to take your bags and, you know, load up 17 bags in one car and give you a ride. And you're like, no, we're already good to go. So I'm 13, 14 years old, you know, wide eyed, not knowing what's going on. But then, um, yeah, it was interesting. Some of the people there in the nineties, we were like instant, instant heroes to them. The young people, oh, America, the Western world, all this freedom and Jordan and the bulls. And, you know, they pay attention oh, to yeah. all the pop culture stuff. Right. And then some people, mainly the older generations, they didn't want us there. Like they saw us as the enemy. They saw us as trying to overturn their lives. Hey, we didn't wait in bread lines before democracy came along. And now I don't have the food that I need. My husband lost his job in the factory and, and you're the bad guy. So it was, it was an interesting environment. You mentioned in the mafia, I did not realize at the time, but a group of guys that we played basketball with every afternoon, I found out later Someone had said a couple times, hey, don't worry, you hang out with them and nobody's going to mess with you. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll play, I'll play a couple <laughs> basketball games. And come to find out, no, they were uh, pretty high up, I think, in the, the mafia there. They got and, tattoos. They had tattoos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we didn't have any problems because we were, I guess, with the right group. Who knew wow. at the time? Yeah. You love how Michael Crazy Jordan. Uh, you, did you speak Russian when you got there? Um, no, not when I got there. So, so that's how you learned the language? Yeah. Immersion, and then we, I had a, um, a professor that we hired from the, the local university, and I don't remember exactly, but I want to say three or four two-hour sessions a week of intensive one-on-ones with her, and then you just, you know, you're a kid, you pick it up. It was a lot, it was not as easy as Chinese, because Chinese, I was three, my parents threw me in a preschool where no one spoke English, and boom, you speak Chinese, right? Um, Ukrainian was more of an effort, but you still pr- pick it up pretty quickly when you're surrounded by it. And which one do you, can you speak better now? Chinese? Probably Chinese. Just because you were younger. Yeah. Russian, I can still do. But first of all, I eat at a lot more Chinese restaurants to brush up my game <laughs> than I do Russian restaurants. <laughs> That's your but practice. Also, yeah. And also Russian, it's, I can still get it, but I have to think through it a lot more to get the words right. Um, the sentence structures as opposed to Chinese, which flows a little bit more naturally like English. If if we're nice and good, maybe you'll treat us with a little Russian rap later on in the show. I don't want to get my hopes up. Um, as you're like, so you're in this foreign country, you're meeting all these people, you're, your parents are missionaries. I, you're making friends, obviously, when you have to. You, did you find that you had to, like, were you interacting with a, a lot of people? I'm going to say it out loud. You have, you're tremendously likable and so easy to get along with, right? And that has to come up, sure, genetically, but also probably from just practice. And like, did you have a lot of, like, were you doing that as a kid? Or did, or did that really happen, like your sense of culture, did that happen later on as you were uh, in the church yourself? I was always pretty outgoing guy in my class, captain of the sports teams, not the best on the sports teams, but, you know, captain of the sports teams, try to bring the group together. So a little bit of that was always in my DNA. And then I think also through a lot of sports, through meeting, meeting people from a lot of different backgrounds and even in the church environment. So I was brought up in a a radically right wing church environment, but in that social circles are really strong. And so you know, you go to the church multiple times a week and you kind of 
have your group of people there. When we'd go back to the States, my dad would go to different churches and try to raise funds for his missions. Mm -hmm. And you're constantly, you know, one week you're in Kentucky, the next week you're in Indianapolis, the next week you drive over to Lincoln, Nebraska, and you're constantly just shoved into classrooms with new kids. And so you kind of learn to adapt and get to know people pretty quickly or it'd be pretty miserable experience. So maybe a little both. Would, are you going to do the same thing to your kids? Um, pro- probably not quite the same. Probably <laughs> not quite. Okay. Probably, probably a good thing. There, there's positives and negatives and everything, Pablo. Pluses and minuses. Right? I know, always. I know how that is. Um, have you been watching The Last Dance, the documentary on Michael Jordan? I have watched every episode at least once. There are a couple episodes I've watched four or five times. I was a diehard Chicago. So that was one thing overseas is we, the one thing that was on TV real time was sports from America, especially the NBA blew up because of Jordan. So the years I was there in Ukraine was kind of the end of the Bulls first run and then the second run as well. So, so yeah, I was a, a big, big Bulls fan and have thoroughly enjoyed the uh, the last dance the last few weeks just sad that it's over I, i've been watching it too i haven't finished it and i mean exactly dude like in perm russia in the 90s my cousin was like michael jordan scotty pippen chicago <laughs> bulls that's what it's all about this is america this is awesome and so like now watching it and kind of connecting those dots uh i mean so he is an incredible athlete michael jordan obviously works harder than anybody else his leadership style is interesting, I would say. Yeah. He's like, he's like, uh, I'm a star. If, if you come and play at my level, you'll get better. Like, I mean, be at my level almost is how I feel like his leadership style is. And, and it sounds like he was rough. I mean, what, yeah. what, what do you think? I mean, I, mean I, I was raised under kind of tougher old school leadership as well. So I, I get it. I, what would be interesting to see is with today's athletes, social media, it's a much more athlete driven world in professional sports today. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see if his style would resonate as much and how modern athletes 20 years later who are used to a little bit more cushy life, I think would respond to it. I have to think he would still get results, right? Like great leaders, you drop them in and style's not for everybody, but he was so amazing at his craft and getting the team together. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see with different, different time, different culture, would his, would his approach have been as successful? Yeah, I, I can't really like it. I wonder how – I hope they got someone going after LeBron and, like, taping him and so we can, like, 20 years later take a look at that. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, he, now we're going to go into the rabbit hole of basketball debates, which we won't do. But the big difference, I think, is, you know, LeBron is – say what you will about their skill sets. LeBron seems to be someone whose style makes people gravitate toward him as far as other people wanting mm-hmm. to be around him, not the ruthless leader that Jordan or, or Kobe was much more, you know, he was cut, cut from the same cloth Jordan was, or at least more similar, um, which is better. I don't know to each their own, maybe, but definitely different leadership styles. What, um, Kobe, yeah, Kobe and him, they had a relationship. It sounded like it's almost like and they mentioned it briefly in the show, but like how he was like, you're going to be my guy. Like you're going to be a star. Like tell me. Oh, yeah. It did. Watch, just, just watch some old games, the way they shoot free throws, the moves they made. It was clear. Kobe loved the guy and emulated even to the smallest details, the way he played. He looked like the same guy playing or a version of him. 
10 years later. LeBron looks completely different, totally different style of, of game. What's your favorite sport to watch? Uh, to watch now would be football. Not basketball, sure. no more. I, I enjoy basketball, um, but not – I think there's something about the once-a-week nature of football. Plus, I live in the Deep South now. I'm about an hour outside Atlanta in the mm. great state of Alabama. Mm. And um, down here, I mean, f football is king. So, we, we have – my kids have football on – I've got a junior high kid who has it on Monday night, a high schooler who has it on Friday night, college on Saturday – NFL on Sunday. Deep. Please, 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 dear Lord, coronavirus, spare us and give us football. We'll see how We it need goes. this football back. Please, please. We, we need anything back, Pavel. We're not even picky at this point. Um, then you should watch the Belarusian League of – I mean, there's, there's like some countries that don't care. Like, just don't give – like, they're just – they got bad leadership and they're just doing whatever they want to do. So you get some content. We found – I watched a couple weekends ago. I, I, by the way, I now understand what you meant when your podcast goes everywhere because here we are. Yeah. But we watched a world's most dangerous diving competition from Scandinavia a couple weeks ago. And it's these, these guys and gals who launch off of like a 40-foot platform in the dead of winter in normal swim trunks, swimsuit, whatever, wow. and literally try to accomplish the most physically painful dives they can as they hit the water and they get scored. This is a real thing. We found it on – ESPN 19 or something. It was great. It was, this is, the, this is uh, not a pool, like in the nature or in a pool? No, no, it was a pool. It was like a big diving pool with people in the stands and then crazy people just launching themselves, not doing real dives, doing like intentional belly flops and nutcrackers oh, and you name it, like crazy oh, I stuff. see. They're trying to hurt themselves and like yeah, who it, hurts himself the most? It was, it was an interesting two hours that we'll never get back, but we smiled and that's okay right now. <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting. Like sports, you know, I never played sports. It sounds like you played basketball. You were a captain of the team even. Um, I, uh, I did my trial. I mean, that's kind of an intellectual sport, but I kind of wish I did. I think it teaches you things about life that, I mean, if you don't learn them while you're doing sports in middle school or high school, you're going to learn it later on in life. So it might as yeah. well. Yeah, sports or other extracurricular group activities, right? Like there's, there's a lot of long-term benefit there, I think, regardless of how well you actually do. Yeah, in the moment. So people interactions and like seeing this leadership thing happen. I mean, I just had a buddy with a coworker uh, had lunch at my place yesterday doing some calls, and I could see the dynamic between them. Um, they were visiting. Really not important, but I could see like who the leader was and how those things, like those personal relationships. And so, like when you when you have a company, and you know, I'm an entrepreneur, datapavel.com. If you need data, call Pavel. Um, <laughs> just kidding. You don't need to call me. Send me an email. <laughs> uh, point being is like, you know, I, my relationship with leadership, sure, I've been a leader and I've gotten compliments on my leadership stuff and, I, and I've built, I think, a really solid team in that role that I had. But it, it's not like, oh, I was like, oh, I want to be a leader. It just, it just kind of happened. And I, I'm just... You know, so basically, what I'm, the reason I say this is I didn't come in there trained, okay, I'm going to be a manager, I'm a leader, and, like, there's a cultural thing happening, and we're a remote company, and, like, how do you deal with it? You know, I just kind of had to roll with the punches. And, I mean, and I'll bring it back to a question for you. And so the work that we do, it doesn't matter what company, really. You can be a grocery store. It can, you know, let's say you are a team of some sort, more than two people. Um 
those interpersonal relationships matter, right? So it's, I'm, I'm trying to reconcile in my head this idea of this is a job. I'm going to hit my buttons. I'm going to get a paycheck and I'm done and I'm happy. And there's nothing wrong with it to the reality is you're a person and you need these relationships to function. And actually it does matter that it's not just you hitting buttons, getting the, getting the stuff working, getting the reports out, you know, getting the widgets built, those relationships and how you interact with people. It's an important aspect of your life, your work life. So, I mean, what do you think? Like, is there a need there? Is it intertwined? I'm sure it's different for everybody, but like, I think there are some general things where, where I'm telling you, it's what I found is that even though I thought these froofy things don't matter, the more I got out there after college and worked, I understood how relationships are basically the basis of everything in life. I think, yes, I think everyone's different, but there has to be a tie, right? For one, our lives are too short to spend. What, what, what percentage of our lives do you think we spend working, Pavel? I don't, I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't know, 40. Yeah, 40. I mean, of your working years, you're spending the majority of your waking hours working, right? So part of it for me is, do you want to live a life you enjoy or you want to live a life you're miserable with? Well, if you want to enjoy life, you need to enjoy your work most likely. And a huge part of that is enjoying the people that you work with. So that's one. Two is most people do their best work and are the most passionate about doing good work when they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. So yeah, I'm punching buttons. I'm, you know, making widgets, I'm doing whatever, but there's gotta be, there's a bigger purpose behind it. And a lot of times the group of people I'm around tie into that purpose. So like when you led your team at blue tree, you were going in every day and what you did impacted 30 people around you directly, right? You're all striving toward the same goal. You're rolling up your sleeves. You're doing the same things together. And even if you don't go into it thinking, wow, the human part of this is really important. As you get into it, you're realizing I'm only as successful as the people around me. I'm only enjoying myself if I have good relationships with the people around me. So yeah, I think relationships are a huge part of how happy we are at work and how invested we are in our work. Um, could you technically show up, punch the clock, turn it off? Yeah. And most of those people probably aren't very happy and probably aren't the ones who are going to go out and change the world with the work they do either. Interesting. I mean, I think that makes sense. And I agree. What's is culture relationships, maybe a component. How do you like, how do you think about what a company or team culture is like? Maybe those are two different things. I don't even know. Yeah. So I, you know, culture is one of the 72 great buzzwords of the English language, especially in business, right? Yeah. So I, (laughs) good one. I think of culture in its simplest terms as what makes us us. So you asked me about blue tree where I work, what is the blue tree culture where my mind is, okay, what is it that makes blue tree blue tree? What makes us different than other people? And, you know, from your time working there, there are probably things you like, probably things you didn't, but all of those come together and that is the culture of Blue Tree. So a lot of times we get focused on, well, the culture is vision statements and mission statements and value statements and there's all these things on paper. And maybe it is, that can be what you aspire to be, but culture actually is day to day in the trenches, what's going on in the company. And that's what defines the fabric of the company or gives the company its identity or the team. Same thing, I think. Um, so that's how I think of culture is the unique set of characteristics that comes from the decisions you make, the actions you take. It's, it's what makes us us. Okay. 
Uh, let's take a company that maybe everybody knows, and we're going to speculate because we haven't worked there. Facebook, Microsoft. Let's say Facebook. Sure. What do you think the culture is there? I have no idea. So you can only see it from the inside. Um, I think you can see the product of it. And that's one thing that's interesting is like people ask, what's a good culture? What's a bad culture? I think a lot of it comes down to what's the output because if the culture is great, then I would expect some, some great things to be coming from it. Mm -hmm. Right. There's something unique about this place that's causing people to enjoy their work, to come together with other people, to do great things is and yeah, it's possible that there could be great output and a crappy culture behind it. But I think it's only a matter of time where those two things measure up. So hard to know from the outside looking in. And what's so interesting today is right. Like what do we know about most companies? It's probably the one or two bad headlines they got over the past two or three years. And that could be indicative of their culture. And it could not be, it could just be what made the press. So it's, it's a crazy time with visibility, which is why I think Glassdoor LinkedIn, places like that have taken off so much because you get insight from the outside in, from people who are inside, what's the culture like? Um, and that may be the best snapshot, the best snapshot that you can actually have. Hmm. So Facebook, I could make up an answer, but unless I spend time talking to people there, I don't think I have any idea what it is outside looking in. No, I mean, that's fair. And I'm, you know, I think it's so elusive. I mean, what you, how you, how you describe the set of characteristics of everything you do. I mean, you're not wrong, but I think it's hard for people to kind of like, oh, well, that's, that's, that's not a, it's not a specific enough answer. It's like, right. okay. I mean, yeah, culture is culture. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to like, what, what is it at its core? Which is hard. I mean, I don't think there's a right answer we're going to get to here, but, um, I'm trying to think, okay, what about like we talked about Jordan and his team, like teams have culture. Like, what do you think that team's culture was? Uh, it was a, you know, I think the phrase you'd hear most often is a winning culture. Mm -hmm. It was a, when it, it all seemed, costs, when it all costs culture, right? It seemed, seemed to be a culture of kind of top down. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? not brutal force, but an enforcing style of leadership where it's kind of get in line or get off the bus. Mm -hmm. So that kind of culture, um, other, you, you look about, you know, you look at other sports teams, um, through the years and maybe they had a much different approach. Maybe they succeeded because it was very much, you know, we're all equal parts of this and it's, everyone has an equal voice at the table and there's a positive element to it. Mm -hmm. But so, so culture. Yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying. I think that's general, but I think it's also, like, what do you, what, what does a group of people prioritize? Like, what are the most important mm, things? That's them? interesting. Right? What are the, when faced with different opportunities, what decisions do they consistently make? What drives those decisions? That'll tell you a lot about the culture. Um, how do they interact with each other? What do those interactions look like? And what do they feel like to someone inside? All of those things are maybe, maybe one layer more specific but kind of still get to the question of what makes us, us. Um, at least that's how, that's how Alabama thinks about it anyway. Yeah. The greatest beatboxer in Alabama, Caleb Campbell. Boom, boom. <laughs> that's another treat we might get a little later. Um, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> can we bring your son? Maybe he can help us. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> okay. So that, that does add up. So really it's, it could be anything from, you know, is someone looking to see that you're in your seat from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m.? Or is it, 
you know, no one cares. It's all about the output. Are people checking emails after work or not? People working on Saturdays. Um, when faced, you know, are you, you know, one thing I like Gary Vaynerchuk and one thing he says uh, a lot about like culture for him, the company culture is getting rid of the, the toxic bad people, even if they're high performers. So as an example, you could have someone who's just an asshole. Now, but they could be bringing millions of dollars and whatever. And, you know, his, the culture he wants for his company is to say, if you're an asshole, even if you're a high performer, you know, high, high revenue, whatever the metric is, I don't want any assholes. You're out. And then you, and you kind of can try to create culture that way. You can, and so you, or you could be like, okay, you make a mistake, you're out, or you get a second chance, a third chance, a fifth chance, a tenth chance, which maybe is too much. That's another side of culture. So really, I think I'm getting what you're saying now is it's all of these I like prioritization decisions that happen that kind of set precedent on how we react in a situation. And over time, that builds your culture. Yeah, because in the two examples you just gave, what were they? They are decisions with how leadership deals with high performing assholes or how does leadership deal with this situation? And so I think as you make those decisions, people pay attention to them it especially so it's true across the board every person helps contribute to what the culture is but people who are seen as leaders have an outsized influence on culture because if you have a title next to your name or you're the person leading a group of 30 people people like it or not like we can say what we want to about how there's no hierarchy or anything else people pay the most attention to what you do and what you do screams volumes to them about what's really important from our team. Well, I saw you deal with Matt this way, and I would have never expected you to do that. And all of a sudden, boom, in my mind, that's part of the fabric of who we are. Oh, that's how, we, that's how leaders of this company deal with people now. So that's what's important to us. And maybe I'm cool with that. Maybe I'm not. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the decisions and then all of the ripple effects that come out of it that, yeah, play a huge part in it. And then this, this, uh, the people that are not leaders... I mean, obviously contribute to culture. Um, but I, even that, I'm going to question as I say that because it's a situation. Let's start, you know, someone wants to do a coffee break at 2.30 p.m. That person, and this is not top down, it's just they're sitting in office. One guy gets up and he's like, hey, you want to get, let's get some coffee. We need a break. We go and we have a coffee break. Now, that guy that stood up, in a way, he's kind of the leader in that situation. Kind of like, Shh, he might not have a title of leader, but he's creating something new like that and kind of leading the people. And I wonder so that uh, the leadership and culture maybe has a very, a relationship that's always there. Like, you, you know, it, I wonder if that's true versus saying spontaneously, these people are going to start playing a, a volleyball game and that's part of our culture now. And Wednesday volleyball, was it spontaneous? No, there was always someone there that kind of showed some leadership maybe. Yeah, well, and I, I think there's a couple of things there. One, it gets to the question of leadership. Is it just your role or where you sit on the org chart or can you lead from where you are? That happens all the time. But then two, I think some of the, some of the big culture wins that some organizations have did not actually come from people who are quote unquote the leaders of the company. They came from people who had ideas, grassroots movements, mm -hmm. you know, different things that they started on their own. And so I remember at Blue Tree, um, probably two, uh, two and a half, three years ago, we had to keep a couple people that kept bringing up, Hey, we get that there's not a lot of diversity 
in IT or in Epic in general, but we think it should be a priority here. And they kept beating the drum and they kind of started doing some research on their own. Six months later, our CEO, Jeremy, set up and said, hey, this is going to become a priority for the company now. And we launched several initiatives specifically around um, increasing our diversity and becoming a more inclusive company. And in that case, yeah, ultimately, leaders were involved and supported and moved it forward. But, but the match that, that sparked it you know, were a couple of people on our talent team who just had a passion in that area. Yeah. And, and now, you know, three years later, you look at where our culture is. I think we're much stronger in that space than we were. And it ultimately came, and I think all this leads to something that's very important, and that is cult, culture is who we are. I am a part of who we are. And so regardless of my role, I have an opportunity to influence our identity. Because if I push the same thing that you do, Pavel, that Jacob does, that Matt does, then together we can forge what the, what the future culture is. And so um, actually at CultureCon last summer, Ted, Ted, one of our founders, and I had a chance to, to do a talk. And it was, um, oh, how do we word the goofy thing? I don't remember. But oh, culture. It was culture. But imagine the word spelled without the letter U. Mm-hmm. And it was culture needs in the letter U. And our whole point was you have an opportunity because you're part of the us to drive what's there. If there's something you don't like, what can you do to control it or make it better and turn the tide? Something you do like, what can you do from where you sit to make sure it doesn't go away and it stays a part of who you are? Um, So yes, I think leaders have an outsized influence because right or wrong, people just pay attention. But it doesn't mean that every person can't contribute to the fabric of of their team or their company or whoever it is. It only takes one person to stand up for something or to push something when it might become the thing that's noticed and it might become the thing that, that totally turns the tide of who you are as a group of people. You never know. Yeah, totally. And, and like you said, leadership comes without title, which is uh, something to remember. It's interesting. Um, okay. So I think we now kind of understand what culture, those are good insights and it's uh I mean, it's everything and it's, it, it's, I mean, I guess how conscious should people be me as a, an entrepreneur, as I'm building a company, do I need to be like doing some sort of checkpoints, pulse checks to say like, where, you know, how's my team? How's my company doing it? Are we, are, are there assholes here that I don't want? You know, I don't want, there's no, no assholes rule. I mean, making shit up, but like, how conscious, how premeditated is that stuff? I, I, think, I think it's always important, especially like in the, in the initial stages because you're setting precedent. Like a lot of what we do seven years into our Blue Tree journey, we do the way we do because of the first 20 people who worked here. Mm-hmm. So you're setting, you're laying a foundation that's going to be really hard to get away from. So I think it's extremely important then. And then especially as you grow, you know, your team grows from two to 10 to maybe 50, 100 and on up, it, as you grow quick, if, if you get to a point where you're growing quickly as we did, it becomes really important to stay tied in because it's easy in that case to assume, well, things used to be a certain way right. and now they're on autopilot when the reality is they're not. So two things, two things, Pavel, that I think play into what you just said. One, Jeremy. Um, from, from Blue Tree, so Blue Tree CEO, yeah. Jeremy would tell you that one of the best pieces of advice someone ever gave him is you have to find three or four trusted voices 
who are close to the ground and will always tell you the unfiltered truth, no matter what, no matter how much you like it or you don't. And he said, you've got to have those people that you can depend on because they can keep you grounded when you don't see everything that's going on. So I think that's, that's a cool, a cool tip there. But then second, one thing we've done increasingly as we've grown is we now place a huge priority on directly asking the team, look, we say we stand for this and we would claim these are the positives of being here. Speak your truth, right? So we do that in two ways. We do listening sessions that we've done twice now over the last two years where anyone in the company who wants to sit down for half an hour with someone on the culture and development team can just unload any thoughts, all fair game, all confidential. We take the things we say, Hey, where can we get better? Mm -hmm. And then we use a tool, as you know, an outside tool called office vibe where we actually do weekly snapshot surveys that give people a chance to talk about specific, you know, specific areas or themes where we want to identify how are we doing in engagement, communication values, et cetera. But people also can kind of free form anything that they want. And we have a team that actively monitors every response that comes in has eyeballs on it. And I think during the growth phase, that kind of crowdsourcing becomes really important to make sure, you know, you got a pocket of 10 people over here, a pocket of 30 over here. Are we really doing the best we can by each of those groups as we grow? Yeah, hat tip, hot tip, office vibe. I, I'm working on a client now who's also using it. So I think they are, they might be the gold standard in that. Uh, what is the vibe in your office tool set, so to speak? Yeah, I remember using that too. I remember writing some responses down that were um, very, um, quote unquote, venting responses. And uh, it's always good, good to vent. Eventually you get over it. Um, and uh, yeah, it goes into a confidential black hole, which is always nice. Yeah. And it's, you know, we, we try to encourage people. People can put anything they want. And, and because it's anonymous, we can then have a conversation with the person through the platform. And they, they know who I am, but I don't know who they are. And we always encourage them, one, hey, this is a situation involving an individual. Have you talked to the individual? Have you talked to your manager if this manager thing is a problem? Right, right. But then also, it's also nice, though, to be able sometimes to just you know, give, give your truth out there and not have to worry about anything. So speak your truth to power, get your, get your facts out there and, and make sure we see the full picture of, of what we're trying to do. I love it. It's been, it's been a great, uh, you know, there's culture amp, there are other tools that are similar to it, but it's, it's been a, um, it's been huge for us the last two years in our growth. Absolutely. Shout out Eric, Eric Cedarstrom. He, uh, he was like, he was office vibe. Good job. That's awesome. Um, now, we talked about it in a general setting, and, and Bluetree was a hybrid company with an office, but also a large staff that's fully remote. Um, let's, bring, let's bring this remote, you know, virtual company thing into perspective. Like, do you think it's harder? Do you think it's easier to develop the culture you want by, you know, listening and hearing, but also setting, like, all the things we just discussed of how it all works? Um, is it easier or harder? Like, what is the difference? And I can't, um, I mean, I'll tell you my perspective. Um, I mean, I think it's different. I think, uh, I think remote culture, remote companies, they are almost forced to, uh, foster independent decision-making and depend, you know, independence in, in the, in your employees, um, because, you know, you're not there to watch over their back. Um, and so 
the micromanagement kind of goes away. I focus on results. I think all those themes get amplified or become like, well, we can't see if that person is doing FaceTime. Let's instead see, you know, how are they crunching code or, you know, and I know, for example, Facebook, like they, you're, the amount of code commits you do is a metric for them. You can do that from anywhere. I mean, I don't know if that's a good metric or a bad metric, but, but it's a metric of productivity of some sort. Um, what do you think? Physical versus fully remote versus hybrid? Where is like, yeah, how does that all fit in? Uh, so many questions weaved in there, Pavel. I, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, we spoke to, so Carly, who's on our talent team, and I spoke to a group a couple weeks ago that had been kicking around the remote virtual idea before COVID kind of forced them into it, and they're now considering full bore, make that the norm, at least 60 to 80% remote, right? Some, some touch points in person. And when we were talking to them, they said they were shocked to find out that this is a healthcare organization. Their providers and caregivers were actually far more engaged in a remote setting than they seem to be in person. And I think there are some areas where, like you said, you're almost forced into it. So it kind of forces you to be more thoughtful about who you hire because I'm going to have to, I can't micromanage this person. That's a recipe for disaster. I got to trust that they can do their work and do it well and, and et cetera. So you have to be more thoughtful on who you bring in. It kind of forces you to go out of your way to make human contact, right? Because I sit next to you in the cube. Our offices are side by side. I take for granted that you're there. I'm remote. I need to connect with someone besides my cat for goodness sakes, right? And so it kind of forces you into that same thing. So I think in some ways, there are some, some small built-in advantages for the virtual or remote experience. That said, I'm a people guy. So I'm always going to say remote is, is harder than in person. Um, can you do it and do it well? I think so. Um, I think especially, especially if you can have a hybrid, um, even if you're remote, so like at Blue Tree, you know this at Blue Tree, um, we are largely remote, probably 30% of our teams based in the Madison office. Everybody else is scattered coast to coast. Um, and even those who are remote, we have one or two times a year when you're going to get together and have some touch point with the people on your team. For some people, it's more, but at least a couple. I think those are extremely important. Um, but yeah, I think, I just think we as humans in, in all of history, if I may say so, mm -hmm. like we're used to working with other humans. And so... I think there are a ton of challenges that come with the remote or virtual game. That said, I do think companies are realizing right now that you can do it. There are some benefits. And so if we're willing to work hard to overcome the challenges, it could be what makes us competitive with our job offers because we offer it like other people do. It could bring about cost savings. It could help in times of, I don't know, global pandemic. So, so it's interesting. It's not, it's not as black and white as I think it might seem when you first, when you first talk about it. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, totally. And I, uh, you know, what, 30 hires, I did whatever it was. A remote was always, everybody was there, was like, oh, we love remote, can't wait to work remote. And then once they started, it's like, oh, love working remote. So I, I, I think there are benefits to not being stuck in a commute. It's also that flexibility in the schedule. So if you have kids and you gotta take your kids to daycare, you know, from nine to nine thirty. Okay, go ahead. And then you make you know make up your half hour elsewhere. No one cares. You're more in control of your time. Work 
Now, this is, it gets dangerous, I think, because what can happen is work really melts into your life. Now, on one side, that's good. Because, you know, you, your life is now as you want it to be. You get to go see your football games with the kids and et cetera. But then you're, you know, at 9 p.m., you're still writing code, writing email, whatever it is that needs to get done because it's so intertwined. And it becomes, I think, something that I had a really hard time doing um, is having that separation. I mean, my office was in my kitchen. The computer would always be here, My, you know. I mean, and that's not irrelevant because we all also have our phones in our hands. I mean, and so it, I think that separation is hard. At the same time, the flexibility you get is amazing for the remote lifestyle. And I think a lot of people are into that. The other thing I think that you can see some global companies doing um, is really moving towards um, asynchronous communication, which is hard. Mm-hmm. But basically it means that we don't have any overlap in time zones at all. So what we have to do is be very thoughtful in our written communication. We have to write everything down. And you have a huge company like GitLab who is globally remote, no office, doing stuff. And I actually think that, so I think that brings a caliber of talent. And it's also hard to execute. But once you do execute, you know, that I think that's a good culture slash productivity hack, having that, you know, asynchronous thing can't happen for everything obviously but i think there's some benefits there well no that's a great example and and i think about communication as one thing where there's neither a right or a wrong you just have to be more thoughtful and deliberate about it Mm -hmm. because you have to your point on on the written communication you know a couple years ago we started leveraging video communication heavily and we do so even more now Mm -hmm. and so some people are going to respond best to hearing something in a meeting live. Some people are going to be fine to listen to the meeting. Other people want a four minute, you know, while they're running from one plane to the next post COVID, they want a four minute summary from the CEO of the most important things they need to know. And they would rather see a face and and feel a human and get that quick form there. And so, you know, communication is one thing where when you're not in person, you've got to, you've got to use everything you can at your disposal because everybody's going to respond or, or, um, or consume something in a different way. Back to your other question, Pavel, on you know some of the positives that you mentioned. It feels to me like at the individual level, it can be a great thing. To your mm-hmm. point, there's boundaries. You, you got you to figure out some things. But there are a lot of perks to the individual, which is why it's so popular and why com- companies have to, are going to have to start offering it more to stay competitive. So at the individual level, there's a ton of positives. And then even at the company level, um, I don't even see my hands here. Yeah, Individual, yeah. the company, there you go. Um, at the company level, it has to be appealing, right? Cost savings, um, flexibility, a lot of things there. To me, where you've got to place the focus is on the layer in between, which is at the team level. Mm-hmm. Because where it gets really hard is you've got a unit of people that need to be rallied behind a common mission, need to be able to communicate to each other, need to have relationships that are bigger than work. So I know you have my back and we have a personal foundation as well, Pavel. You know, we, we, we speak our Russian bit when we're out, you know, playing shuffleboard late at night, whatever it is. And so a lot of the things. Shout at the, out Silver Dollar. Shout out Silver Dollar, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, but, but so a lot of the things at that kind of team level are where I think it gets hard 
And thus the managers and directors, kind of those mid-level leaders really have to focus on, I know it's good for my team member and maybe this is where the company's going. What do I do to still have a powerhouse team with all these intangibles that get a lot trickier when you're not together in person? And that's where a huge focus needs to be. Mm, so that's interesting. And I, um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So actually the, those, the, the role of the mid, like that manager, the team leader, that's the tough role to be in because you don't have the same level of interaction with your remote team. If you're changing, let's say from physical to remote and you, you're still responsible for that team culture, that team camaraderie, like you said, like we got to help each other work together, achieve the mission, achieve the goal. Um, what, so what, what kind of advice do we have for this, for, for her? I mean, I, I think, you know, be deliberate is the high level vague answer that you don't want. Be deliberate is one thing, but then think about, you know, there are a lot of things out there that have been proven to be successful. So one simple example that we've used recently, we've recently gone to, to Microsoft Teams. We were on Slack and a hodgepodge of different things before then, um, but kind of building community with tools and technology that you can't in person, I think is a huge thing. Finding ways to make it about more than just work and still put those opportunities out there. So when you're in person, you got the water cooler, right? You got the coffee break that you talked about that you and Sam made up and started at 2.30 and now is a company thing for three hours every afternoon. You got all these things where you got the after, you got the the volleyball league after, after, you got all these things that naturally happen to build relationships and community in a in-person setting. And so what do you do to foster those outside? So like on, on teams, we have interest groups where we've got everything from Harry Potter book fans, where you can just talk to other people who geek out on that. So we do a monthly blue tree movie night. Now you jump in the channel and literally somebody counts down highly sophisticated here, Pavel, the nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, everyone hit play on Netflix at the same time. That's awesome. um, we, you know, we have, we have a give committee where maybe you can't go out and do outings together in person. So we have a give back week and find somewhere in your local organization, in your local community to give back. We do the virtual 5k where you run a 5k wherever you are, you share your pictures, you put it on social company reimburses. your fee. So all these kinds of things where maybe you're doing them alone, but you're intentionally tying it to the broader community. And those are and just a few examples. Those are the kinds of things I think become really important for those, those team leaders to think about with their crew. The things you described though are like were done across Blue Tree, right? Harry Potter groups, et cetera. Um, I wonder as a team leader, if I am the, you know, leader of the de- graphic designers, you know, somewhere. Yeah. I'm the head graphic designer and, yeah. What, what do I do as a, how do I, cause I will have some people that want to run a 5k. I will have some people that want to drink a gallon of whiskey and totally. like, uh, you know, I, well, and, and therefore lies the challenge probably. I think part of it is knowing your team and finding something that's unique to your team, right? Cause those things I mentioned, yeah, they're company wide, but then we have teams that do their own specific things. So one of our teams, I, I just actually, Pavel, we do a podcast now since you left Pavel called Treehouse rocks internal to blue tree. And I just did one where I talked to different managers about leading virtual teams. And one of the people who manages, a te- she was on a team of about 50 at the time. They did team awards where you could nominate your peer for different things. And they did like WWE style, big gaudy belts. And that That's resonated awesome. with the team. They did a holiday party where they sent out 
gifts. I'm sorry, I said a holiday party. It was somehow it was tied to the end of Game of Thrones. I don't really know how or why, but it was when Game of Thrones craze was going on and they actually sent people gifts in the mail on the team tied to that theme because they had a lot of people on the team who geeked out over Game of Thrones. You get the little goodie in the mail, you jump online, you have your virtual happy hour. So, so I think the key is know your team and put effort in. And it doesn't have to just be you either, right? You have a team of 30 people, Pavel. Maybe you're not the best one to figure out how to build community on that team. There are probably other people who are amazing at it. And maybe they're not going to be the first one to raise their hand to do a customer presentation or lead this new project. But maybe there's two or three rock stars, you know, hiding behind the curtains that would be incredible culture builders for the team. So there's all, all kinds of stuff you can do. How do you identify those like sleeper culture champions? Uh, you know, I think this gets to the importance of when I say knowing your team, I also mean knowing the individuals on your team. So if you're having, and, and, and this goes to something else, which is, man, Pavel, we go forever on this, right? Here, here we are at minute 53 going strong. But I think one-on-ones, one-on-ones are always important. And I'm talking about team leader, yeah. team member, especially in the, in the virtual or remote setting. That's a way you can keep them motivated, see how they're doing. They know they can bring anything they need to you not in micromanage way, but just keep the, and through that, you should be learning about what makes each person tick. And it should kind of come to the forefront. You could also just straight up ask, but I think, I think if you're getting to know your team or your managers or leaders are getting to know your team members the way you should, like I could, I could call any person in a leadership position across the different blue tree teams and probably say, Hey, I need someone for this culture type activity give me a couple, they would immediately throw out two or three names because you, you know, you get to know the team, you know, know who likes what, who does what. Fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, There was something else you said that I I wanted to bring up. It was, um, oh boy. Oh yeah. So the interaction with people when you're remote, you said in the beginning, like, Man, that's important. I remember when I was at Blue Tree, I would, those flying times where we just go out and, There'd be a little bit of work, a little bit of whatever, fun. But you got to know people, especially when you're starting out. You got to know these people. And then once you've met them, once you shared some food with them, maybe shared a drink, though, I mean, I think people rely on alcohol too much. I mean, I know I do. It's just, it's easy. It's fun, but it's it, not everybody drinks. So you have to kind of work that carefully, I think, into your culture. Totally. Um, you know, if I need something or if, I made a mistake. I can call, you know, Juliet or Wayne and great old powerful Wayne and be like, <laughs> you know, be like, you know what? Like I feel more comfortable because it's, especially when it's remote because you just, you need to have that. Like you said, we're, we are animals. We are these humans. Um, and so I would say at least twice a year, Maybe even four times a year is not a bad idea to get people together. And honestly, even if you get together just for like a little vacation kind of thing, if, if your productivity throughout the year can afford it, I think that's even better than trying to do um, a lot of work stuff. So yeah, I, you know, people, people could debate me. So all three and a half of you Blue Tree folks who listen to this at some point, um, I'm, pre- I'm prepared to debate, but... If I had to name the two most important pieces or or points in a 
Blue Tree employees life cycle at Blue Tree, it would be their orientation because a couple of years ago we switched and we now fly people into maps. Even if you're going to be completely remote, we bring you here for an in-person orientation. You get to know some people that you're never going to forget. You can put names with faces. You get a feel for what the community is like. Um, there's no going back. Our engagement scores between those who, who attended orientation in person early on versus oh, yeah. I bet it's out of the water. Yeah. It's not even close. Right. So it's the in-person orientation and then the in-person event that we have where the entire company comes together every year. We call it our bash blue trees, annual strategic huddle. And guess what? We don't do a lot of work there. We give back. We talk strategy for a couple hours and we just spend two days getting to know people that you only know from behind a screen. And the relationships that people build in that first week and then that kind of annual rejuvenation or coming together, like that alone will carry you so far when you're living in a predominantly virtual world. Now, you could also throw in the analytics team had their own retreat a few months ago. Sure. And you've got these or or even like we encourage people if you're on a project team and you've, everybody's got to go and you're doing totally different work and you got to get on site, get on site the same week, do a dinner together, hang out a little bit. It's all about the human connection. And yeah, it's amazing how a little bit of that goes a long way when you're in a virtual world, if you're still trying to do all of those other kind of community building things in a virtual environment. Do you like, I mean, this is a, just a shot of the dark. What's your, like, what's the cadence you would do? You would like to do if you, you know, if, if money and productivity and all these things weren't an issue, meet physically, fly people in every quarter, every six months, every year. You mean the entire company, the entire mm. team? It's a good, and, I, and there is a difference there, but let's say the entire company. Um, I would say once or twice a year for the company paired with once or twice a year for the team. Got it. And an environment like ours is probably the sweet spot. Um, I know our our leadership team, we try to get together in person three times a year in addition to the all company event. And I think somewhere in that three to four range is probably because you're still thinking about, you're still thinking about cost and being good stewards for the company, but you're getting together in person. You're also not making it so often that it's a distraction from the work you need to do. And you're so it's somewhere in there. If I had to guess Qu quarterly ish, yeah, that makes that? sense. I, I like it. I think, you know, want to give people some tactical advice if they want it. Um, so there's something about combining a physical world element with a virtual happy hour. I recently, uh, me and a couple of my friends, one of the guys sent out uh, little bottles labeled ABC, whiskey inside. And I mean, he knew what whiskey it was, obviously. Well, we didn't. And we all got on the Zoom happy hour and like we all tasted the same whiskey at the same time, you know, talked about it. So I don't really know what I'm doing, but some of those guys really peated this, peated that. And um, I thought that was a real, real powerful experience um, in terms of like bonding. And um, I think that's my new business idea is... Uh, I've actually had it for a, a long time and I was, you know, before the quarantine, like, hey, what if I send something that everybody can drink or eat at the same time as we do the actual virtual happy hour? We used to do the virtual happy hours. Now, virtual happy hours, you know, th thanks to COVID, everybody's doing it. Paul, um, are, you, are you running a, 
a virtual communion process? Is this what I'm hearing right now? Because um, that might sell like hotcakes right now too, actually. So Pavel, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. Thought number one, to your point earlier, it doesn't have to be booze either, right? It could be anything. And actually, we, I, I promise this isn't like a planted question. We actually just did this. So last week or two weeks ago, time, time stands still right now, I don't know. It was either last week or a couple weeks ago. We had, we, we had to cancel our huge, big in-person retreat, so we did it virtually instead. Um, you might have made a cameo appearance by video, Pavel, as sure you know. Um, but so we did it, and the week before, we sent out a package to every attendee. And I think we were, you know, our CFO let us spend like a buck ahead, so don't, you know, it wasn't anything glorious. But it was a little note saying, basically, times are weird, but we can still have a good time. It was an agenda. This little package was for a five by seven. It was a stress ball. It was a koozie. What else was it? Um, it was a bag of popcorn with like a blue tree sticker on it. Nice. And then it was a Domino's gift card. And the idea was basically, oh, and we put on the, the, the package, do not open until Monday when we start the retreat. And so I don't know how many people actually ordered the pizza or, or popped the popcorn or not, but it's kind of the same thing, right? It's like everybody shares a physical experience where they are that's part of a more broad virtual thing. And we got, we got uh, at least, you know, two positive voices of feedback on it out of 300. So I think that's <laughs> it. Well, did you guys actually have all 300 together in a video eating pizza at the same time? Because that's what you I mean, have to do. <laughs> that would have been legit. So, see, Pavel, this is where you become a multimillionaire. This is where you bring in the business idea. Uh, one day, one day. I don't even need to get that rich. Just, like, reasonably rich. Just, like, Ocean View, Miami Beach. That's fair. That's fair. Just reasonable. Um, okay, yeah. So, I guess my point is, um, you know, are you going to – Higher birth happy hour Pavel box for your next uh, little team event. I think we hang up the podcast and we start some serious <laughs> business negotiations. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I don't. Uh, you know, I've I've been trying to do the startup for a little t a, a little while now, and I don't know it's hard. I need I need I need some sort of something structure or a kick in the butt or or maybe just like do something small and easy. I and mean, then maybe it is whiskey tasting just because, yeah, not everybody will drink whiskey, but some people might, and maybe that's some. enough to get started. Yeah. You just it's need a, one buyer out there to get it started. Yeah. It's interesting. Remote. Do you think these companies are going to go more remote? Pavel. I got you, What's interesting to me is, the stark difference between the health of the stock market or the return of the stock market and the health of the overall economy and the typical American. Yeah. Just completely in different directions. Yeah, it, totally, totally different. So um, I don't know. It just feel, it, it feels like over the past four years, this, even before this, the swings, even though it's been steadily upward, the swings are just becoming so much bigger. Right, it's, right. Th there's no steady anymore, right? I mean, it seems like it's all over the place. But um, no, I mean, we're within Everybody else do you put your money? Like if you're, if you're lucky enough to save some money, everybody else says you got to put it in the market. It's the only thing to give you returns. Are, are you asking me to talk about, are you asking me to talk about cryptocurrency right now, Pavel? Because we can, my friend. Well, we can do it. Yeah, I'm curious. You, I didn't know you had an opinion on cryptocurrency. I don't really. I don't really. Some <laughs> people usually polarizing. I have, I have friends who are, yeah. think it's just a complete crock of poo-poo and the others that are like, this is, it's the future and you're an idiot. Yeah. What do you land? 
I maybe it's the future, but I don't trust it enough to make it my future. How about that? You don't own any Bitcoin, any nothing right now. I own a little bit, but it's Just more like of a, it's more of a dabble, play in it, play in it kind of thing. I will tell a, a, a fun story on cryptocurrency, which maybe isn't fun, but but here we are. Um, there was <laughs> a there's a a currency out there called Stellar. Stellar Lumens is what it's called. I've heard of the, that. I think the buddy of mine calls me a couple of years ago. He's like, "Hey, you, you got to get in this." Like he was hardcore into. It. He's like, "This is the time to do it." So I I bought in at two and a half cents. Uh, it's not a share, but whatever the heck it is, the exchange rate was two coin. and a half. Two and a half cents, right? Per coin. Pavel, within six months, it had gone from two and a half cents to like eighty cents. Wow. We're talking over thirty x. It's ridiculous. And of course I was like, wow, this thing's going to take off. I didn't do anything with it. It's worth five cents now. And here I still own it and it's worth it. Well, yeah. So, so maybe, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think it's going to Maybe I up. missed my opportunity to dive into crypto hardcore. I don't actually think you have. I mean, there are some smart people who think it's going to go up to $100,000 per Bitcoin. Um, I mean, the, the hedge funds are increasingly making it part of their portfolios. So who knows? Not a, not a significant part, but still getting it. There's a guy like his name is, um, he's a professor at NYU. They call him the Dean of Valuation. His, uh, as a, as Madaran, A-S-M-O-D-A-R-A-N. And he was, tr he's tracking the market. He's got good content on YouTube. Check it out if you're interested in anybody. Um, viral market meltdown updates. Anyway, he tracked over so far to date as the market collapsed, how traditional assets like gold, he's looking at copper and oil and maybe gold and silver, and also what he called millennial gold, Bitcoin, which I think is Bitcoin. Um, and they have not performed during this downfall so far. Now, I think gold has now gone up. So it's like nothing really makes sense about anything anymore, um, it feels like. But uh, and Bitcoin has not performed. It's not, you know, as... As the stock market collapsed, you would imagine it would go up, right? It's kind of like, oh, it's a safe asset, but it right. has not done that. It has recently. And I think there's a sentiment across a lot of my friends that this doesn't make sense. The economic reality is different. This thing has got to gotta have to crash. At the same yeah. time, I think there is a, people are sitting at home, have more dispensable income. Not everybody, but people that do, do. And they have to put, they want to put that money, they want to save it. They're putting it in the market. That's causing it to go up. I've talked to, and I myself am included, pajama traders. Like a lot of my friends, nothing to do. They become pajama traders. They just like trading in their pajamas. I think that's affecting it. I, uh, I don't know. What, do you have a invest? Like one thing that happened to me over the past six months that I took off was I really finally understood financial planning because I've been just kind of gun hole cowboy style. I'm making good money. I'm saving a little money. I'm going to be fine forever. I'm now of a different mindset of let's be very deliberate and let's try to save for a retirement in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm still not sure, you know, I'm still holding a bunch of cash and I'm still doing individual stock picks. And by, you know, by any means I'm not rich. I'm rich enough if you're out there, my beautiful honey wife, you're listening in Russia and you're like, <laughs> is this guy not rich enough? I'm rich enough for you, but for everybody else. And, but, and so I, I, and then I keep reading about basically put it into an index fund is your best bet. Where do you land? I'm, I'm a big, um, so, so there's nothing glamorous here, but I'm, I'm a put enough cash in 
for X number of months emergency fund reserves. Yeah. And then besides that, um, almost everything to index funds. Um, and granted, I do that. I'm, I'm 40, so I'm not five years away from retirement. I've got some time, so I figure I can can manage some ups and downs. And over time, I'm sure I'll, I'll shift to a more conservative position. But, but yeah, I'm, a, I'm an index fund guy. How do you get more conservative than what you described? Oh, more cash? Yeah, exactly. Shift to cash, shift to bonds so that I'm, I'm not in. So like S&P 500 index funds, you don't want to be 100% there when you're five years away from retirement, right? Like you want to start to have more in bond, bond positions. So you can start back, taking it out. out. Yeah. How did you learn this stuff? Um, I don't know. I, I picked it up. Read, read a lot about a little. And this is one of the things I know like a C minus level about, but enough to stumble my way along. And these index funds, they're like an SP 500, any other ones that like you like, Oh, these are the stuff you should get. Um, I, I tend to things. do. Yeah. I mean, I tend to do, like I said, index funds for the S and P 500. I simply look at those that most closely mirror its performance and then those that have lower fees. So shout out Vanguard. Um, I use them quite a bit because they, they have such low fees compared to others. Um, and then like for, for 401k at work, you know, there are equivalents that your different work right. offerings right. may have. Same type thing. Have you heard of like uh, target, yeah. target date funds? Yeah. Not a fan? Um, I think they're all, I think they're fine. I mean, obviously they're managed by people who know a heck of a lot more than I do. Uh, actually, but, it's the studies say these people know nothing. But well, I'll tell you what, every time I've looked at getting into one, when I compare how they've performed against just general index funds and kind of doing your own, they don't actually do great. Right. And, you know, I guess the concept is they naturally do what I just described, where you move out of aggressive stocks into other more conservative positions or holdings over time. They do it based on your age. So, Pablo, you're now 20 years away from retirement, so we're going to automatically drop it from 60 to 40%. And I, I think we could probably do that on our own, personal opinion. Agreed. Interesting. Yeah, I am. Uh, I just hope I don't make some crazy bets because there's a little bit of a gambler in me that does like to do that. And um, it's fun, but also can crash and burn. Vegas is open, Pablo. If we both start driving now. <laughs> We could probably double our retirement nest eggs by the end of the weekend. It feels like a safe, smart move. I saw a ladybug uh, not too long ago. That's good luck, right? I, I got it. <laughs> so whatever crazy idea I have, I might as well put all my money into it. Give it a go. Now or never. Why not? You reference company a lot. And I mean, you are a senior leadership guy at a company. It makes sense. How do you... Do you, like your personal identity, do you, do you separate that from your work role, like career and blue tree, et cetera? Is it all intertwined? It, there are elements of it that are intertwined. Um, I, part of this goes back to being raised as a missionary kid. And then I, we, we didn't talk about this, but I spent, a decade, a dozen years um, leading churches. I was actually a, a minister and yeah. led some nonprofit camps, motivational speaker. And when you're in that world, like your work is your life, it, it, right? It's your calling. So there is no shutting it off. And your identity, it's not your job. It's your passion. It just happens to be your job, right? So they, they are like this in that world. And I think in part because of that, it, 
it can be hard for me to pull the two apart, even in a normal blue tree corporate setting. Um, that said, I also think the role that I play now, it's such that like my, my job is essentially make sure blue tree is the kind of place that brings in the best people, keeps the best people happy, engaged and doing their best work. Like that is my gig. Yeah, and yeah. that that is a people role. That's what I love to do in life anyway, whether I'm doing it for the Y or my son's football team or I'm doing it for Blue Tree. I just am lucky enough to get to do what kind of stokes my fire as my day-to-day thing with the company that you mentioned. It's just the group of humans that I happen to work with. Now it's in an IT consulting group rather than a camp or a church, but it's still the same working mm-hmm. with motivating learning from people experience. I see, I see. Are you coaching your son's football team? I did a couple of years ago. Once you get to uh, seventh grade in Alabama, it has to be people on school staff. Nice. So they kicked me out. But it was so fun. see, I was thinking like you think about Steve Jobs, right? Like yeah, that guy breathed and lived. He was Apple, right? And you think about these other, you know, Ralph Ellison, whatever, Jeremy Schwab. I mean, he lives and breathes Blue Tree. Like this. It, it, my part of me feels like that's what it takes to be a great company builder and a great company leader is to have your identity kind of intertwined. Now you're saying for you, it's, well, it's your passion is people. It's that's, that's kind of your, your whole mentality, which is, a, I think a diff, that's different than what I'm trying to get to or I'm, what right, I was thinking right, about. Right. No, you're, you're saying, you're saying it's a common thing for people in those positions to be truly all in and, right. and really tied in like that is they, it's almost like, do you have to devote yourself to that degree to be leading a successful company? That That's way? what I'm asking the question. And, and I, and I think to a degree, largely the answer is yes. Yeah. Like I, I think, you know, there are a lot of people who would say, Hey, I want to, have a comfortable job and I want to make a decent living. I want to enjoy what I do and I want to work 35 hours a week the rest of my life. And guess what? There are roles where you can find that. Yeah. And you probably at the same time can't raise your hand and say, Hey, why am I not given the opportunity to be the one who's kind of leading the company in this area or through this crisis or whatever it is? Because yeah, I think it does take um, maybe, you know, it can even borderline sometimes on an unhealthy devotion or consumption with it. And I think it's a really tricky line. And a lot of people have found it well, right? Like you talked to, I was uh, talking to the leader of a healthcare organization who's the CEO of a whatever billion dollar group. But he takes two trips a year uh, helping homelessness in different countries. And he's an avid skier and he has all these hobbies on the side. So I think I think you can make it about more than that, but it's it's really hard not to get sucked in and, and make that the thing for you in that spot. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I uh, again, trying. I'm thinking about my future plans of taking over the world, right? And also how lazy I am by my nature. <laughs> like, are those two things at at a, at a at a crash? I think what you're oh. saying, they're not. If you find your passion, which I mean, somebody's somebody's got to break the mold, Pavel. You strike me as someone <laughs> who's not afraid to be the guy who does it for the first time. That's true. Um, I forgot how the song goes, but it you know. Ooh, ba 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 goosa. How does it go? What is it? Avisola goosa. Ooh, ba 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 ba
Один серый, другой белый, два веселый гуса. Hey! Oh, that's, that's awesome. A little Russian nursery rhyme. I love brought that to one, you man. by 2020. I love that one. And what, what's the rap? You got a sweet rap you got. Yeah, I can't do that right now. Oh, is it, uh, does it have cuss words? No, it doesn't. I just thought this was a highly professional and business-like setting, Pablo. Did I get this whole thing wrong? Oh, you got, this is a comedy podcast, brother. Okay. Right. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give it, so basically the background is my Russian professor when I lived in Ukraine made me write a poem. Yeah. I was a cool, I was a cool 14 year old. I wasn't going to write a poem, right? I was a basketball <laughs> guy, not a poem guy. So I was like, I can write a Russian rap though. So she came in, she's like, all right, Caleb, it's your turn to, to read your poem. And no notes. Instead, I went, Oh my God. It's so good. I love the end. It rhymes and the ending is like, it's too late. I got to go to sleep. And it tells you about your life. The best um, though was it, the best though was when we were at shout out Silver Dollar. Yeah, and you thought when you heard that the first time that I was just freestyling Russian rap, which I could never do. I was just throwing a fourteen-year-old poem your way, Pablo. You didn't know the difference. I mean, yeah, it's also quite impressive that you remember something from that long ago. I mean, you know, I'm only forty. I'm not dead yet, so you can remember. I can remember some stuff. I guess that'd be have a hard time remembering a poem I wrote. Uh, <laughs> Man, I guess uh, this has been this has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, this is. Uh, I mean, we do this anyway, but people just get to hear our ramblings. Now people get to hear it and great. love it. I think is the point here. Um, thank you for coming on. I think we learned a lot about you, remote virtual culture. Shout out Blue Tree. You know, may the tree ever be blue, but may the Caleb ever be Caleb. That's, that's hey, really man. more important. Pavel, always a privilege. This is probably top seventeen and a half items on my life list at this point <laughs> as being on the Pablo class. So a, a distinct uh, honor and privilege. Great to see the background again where I've uh, stolen an avocado or two. And uh, great to connect, man. Take care of yourself. Hope, buddy. I hope, uh, you know, I hope you can come visit soon. Can't wait.